0: I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company, Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact tech is having on the law. On today's show, I talked to Noah Weisberg. He's a lawyer, he's a legal tech entrepreneur, and he's the current CEO of ZUVA. That's an embeddable AI tool for contract analysis. My guest today literally wrote the book on lawyers and AI. I'm having a conversation with Noah Weisberg. As many do, Noah went to a top-notch law school, and then he went to big law. At that law firm, he ended up doing a lot of deal work, which involves the review of a ton of contracts. See, when a company is acquired, the buyer needs to know what it might be on the hook for as a result of buying the company. To figure that out, lawyers involved in the deal need to look at all the contracts the acquired company entered into so they can get a good picture of any liabilities and the risk that's being taken on by buying the company. What Noah learned while doing this work is even that moderately sized companies and deals could have a ton of contracts. But because lawyers are expensive, to get the deal done, a lot of times they would review only a subset of the contracts that were deemed most important. So this got Noah thinking. And after taking some time off from the legal grind, he and a co-founder launched Kira Systems. Their goal was to build an artificial intelligence tool that would help lawyers analyze contracts to help figure out what was in them. That way, Noah figured if the AI could give the lawyers a head start, they could review more contracts with the same amount of work they were putting in without AI. And because more contracts were being reviewed, the companies involved in M&A deals would have a better picture of the risks and liabilities. As we will hear, Cura was a smashing success. And last year, the company was acquired by another legal tech company, Litera. Now, most of Cura's customers are law firms. But before the Watera acquisition, Kira started working on a tool that would help in-house legal teams use AI proactively to analyze contracts to help out with contract management. After the Watera deal, this project became a new company, ZUVA, and that's the one Noah is currently running. What we will also hear is that it's really no surprise at all that Noah ended up pursuing a law career. His dad was an attorney, his grandfather was an attorney and a judge, he's even got some aunts that were attorney and judges. But at first, he didn't think the law was for him, and he wanted to teach.
1: In fact, actually, I didn't really feel like being a lawyer. <laughs> I was exposed to it a lot. There were even more lawyers than that. My aunt was a judge. Like I had a like, great uncle who was a judge. Like a great aunt who was a judge. Like lots of people. In fact, even being a lawyer was sort of outside the mainstream uh, as opposed to like judging. And I had a lot of respect for that job and like a lot of love for these people, but. You know, as a kid, like you either feel like doing the same thing or you feel like doing something different. And I think for me, it was something different. And when I was going through college, I really thought that I felt like being a professor. I love research and I loved teaching. And so I started in a political science PhD program at Brown, uh, which was a great experience. But as I got further into it, I realized more about myself as well as more about what being an academic meant. And about myself, I realized that I felt like engaging more with people and everyday problems, and that there was sort of something kind of, uh, in political science at least, my feeling was that knowledge developed almost through like, you'd come up with this great, if you were really, really, really like top of your game, you might come up with a theory of how the world worked that other people accepted. That theory might hold for like 10 years until everybody picked apart all the problems <laughs> with your theory, and then maybe there'd be some like other theory. And it seemed kind of like it was going to be this unsatisfying situation where, like, even if everything went completely right, you'd end up in this situation where like you've now figured out like one way that the world doesn't work, right? Like at the conclusion of this whole process of like being at the top of the game, then have everyone pick it apart it would be like, well, that's like one of the million ways that the world could work that it doesn't work. Right. And that didn't seem that exciting. The other thing I realized is like, I don't mind writing. Like I wrote a book or two books, I guess. Uh, the one of them's quite short. I've written a lot of stuff, but what I realized is that being an academic is you're like a full time nonfiction writer. Right. And that's like how you're being judged. And Again, I don't mind writing. Happy to do it, but I just didn't think that the career path for me that was going to be best was going to be like full-time nonfiction writer.
0: So you chose law. Another, another <laughs> so, well, I was particularly like... well qualified for law school
1: at that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> like being in a PhD program at like a fancy university. So I decided I would write the Elsa. I had a pretty good gig at Brown. Like a, like just a good setup there. I liked it a lot. And I'm like, I can either finish up my PhD really quickly or I can go to law school. Why don't I write the LSAT? And if I do well on it, I'll apply to a few schools. And if I don't do well, then I'll just sort of ride it out and get a PhD. And as it turned out, I did good enough to get into a good school. And so I applied to just like a very small number of schools and I uh, ended up going to NYU, which I think is a wonderful place. And so ended up as a lawyer, but like totally might not have been. Coming from a
0: family of lawyers, I know you, you had to know this, though, that if you're trying to escape writing, the practice of law is not the profession oh, to
1: go. It's different, though. It's not as much writing. And right. Anyways, most of the writing as a corporate lawyer is just copying and pasting, right.
0: <laughs> like president. <laughs> which we'll get to, like which we'll get to.
1: So no, in fact, actually in my current job, like I ended up like, I've, You've written one big book. I've written a children's book. I've like got a chapter in like uh Oxford University Press book, like or Cambridge University Press. I have written in this job quite a lot. I've also like I am a, written my share of emails. Like most <laughs> of my job is writing or talking. Like it's probably not that much different from being an academic in some ways, but I am engaged in real world problems. Right. And uh, I think it's been, it's worked out enough.
0: Out of law school, you end up in big law. Was that always your desire or? If you go to
1: like a sort of one of the types of law schools that I went to, you generally end up in big law.
0: Right. At what point was it, or was it during your tenure at the law firm that you started thinking about Kira and using tech to deal with some of these problems of, analyzing contracts
1: so a couple pieces to this first of all i wasn't sure even when i went into big law that i was going to be a lawyer forever right like as you know i had a lot of exposure to what being a good lawyer means for your life and well it seemed really good in some ways i'm not sure that i went into it thinking that i'd be a lawyer forever and when i was there i sort of got exposed to the same thing right which is these super smart people working really hard for their money right like making very generous amounts of money but but really working for it and that seemed kind of suboptimal to me i would rather be like a rock star and just get paid <laughs> to like sit on the beach or something like that right
0: well they would tell you they were a card though too like they're on the tour bus right
1: but unfortunately actually my current line of work probably yields more work than i even did at the law firm but it does have some favorable Attributes to it. But basically, when I was at the law firm, like as I was a junior corporate lawyer and as I got to be more senior, I spent a lot of time doing this work and then supervising people doing this work that was awful. That junior corporate lawyers spent like massive amounts of time doing work that they
0: hated. You talk about due diligence work specifically, right? Lots of work. Due diligence
1: was an expression of that work, but like tons of stuff, like putting together closings, like yeah. turning comments, and like much of the time that you spend as a junior corporate lawyer, you're there and you like went to a good law school and you did well at this good law school and you're stuck doing this work that like, is bad. Like it doesn't, you did not need to graduate at the top of your class from Harvard like, or whatever and be like, you know, an editor of the law review to kind of, that, that was me, like I went to NYU, but just like you did not, you do not need someone of this background to do this work that's like highly repetitive and you know, really not that much fun, right? Like very detail-oriented, but not in like interesting details. And it seemed as a junior lawyer, you sit there and you're like, this is not that fun. But it also, like, it's not like the clients were that happy paying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour for this work either. And it seemed like it just wasn't sustainable to me that that would continue. And it seemed like that created an opportunity, which is that people were spending huge amounts of money to get this work done and you could do it better. So when I was at Weil, which like a great place, really liked it. Uh, but when I was there, I started thinking about one business idea. Like there was this one, uh, there were these projects I was on around fun formation and they seemed like, or one fun formation project and it seemed like super inefficient. And I thought there was opportunity to make it more efficient. Uh, and so I was Thinking about that when I was at the law firm, I quit at a certain point just to sort of go off and make the life that I felt like making from a- Yeah, I wanted to ask you that
0: question. I I wanted to confirm that because it seemed I had read somewhere that you actually quit before you launched the company. So there was a period of time you were trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, so basically at a
1: point, I kind of had like years, like from probably when I was a second year lawyer, I was like, I really should go off and I should get into business and I should get into business. And I was like doing tons of informational interviews and thinking about this business concept that I had. And I just kept thinking about it. And at a point, I just figured it was time to like, that it wasn't just going to happen while I was in my current job. What and what year was and, this? This is like 2010, summer 2010. It was a fourth year at while, and I just, I quit, right? Like I liked a lot of parts of the job. I really liked a lot of people that I worked with, but it wasn't what I felt like doing for the rest of my life. And I thought that if I didn't quit and make it happen, that I would just yeah. <laughs> potentially stay there and in this forever. Kira starts
0: in 2011, right?
1: Yeah, so I sat and I thought. For just like six months, like wife and I went and traveled a little and then we came back and it was just kind of like I started working through this one concept that I was thinking about a while and I realized it just wouldn't be that good of a business. And then I started thinking through something else that's not dissimilar from like what became Doxley uh, or Loterra Transact or any of those businesses that was kind of conceptually along those lines.
0: Docs helps you close deals and get signatures. Yeah, like especially like just
1: preparing signature pages right. and like there was just massive amounts of time done. And I also, I wasn't that excited about that. And then I started thinking about contract review, and I realized that it fit the theory of what I was looking for perfectly. That junior corporate lawyers spend massive amounts of time reviewing contracts. They're often, even at the world's best firms, they make mistakes at that but that they're often looking for the same things over and over again. And because they were looking for the same things over and over again, thought there was opportunity to build software to help them find that stuff. So I got together. So I'd been kind of like sitting on my bum and going to the gym and thinking about this and reading a lot and hanging out and then started thinking about this and like really got going and got lucky to sort of through a friend of a friend of a friend meet a bunch of computer science PhD grads and clicked really well with one of them, Dr. Alexander Hudek. And we sort of got to work on building out what became Kira. And when we started the business, we thought it would take us like four months to harness the state of the art in machine learning and apply it to this problem. So we decided that It would probably take us six months to raise money, and it was better to just, we were more excited about building the software, and we'd build the software, and then it'd be easier to raise money. As it turned out, it was like not four months to build the software. Like six months later, our software did not work well, and it was a much more complicated technical problem than we thought.
0: I think you wrote an article about that, and you mentioned that just that, that it took a lot longer than you thought it was going to. In fact, it took years. And one of the things that made it complicated, even though at the base level, many contracts are the same, have the same clauses. They're all different. So that complicated what you were building. Yeah, I think Alex thought
1: that contracts would be pretty similar. And there was research suggesting that you could find things uh, in those types of situations pretty easily. But actually, it turns out there's a lot of diversity in the way contracts are phrased. And some concepts are not so bad, like not too hard to find like in fact, actually, one of the first clauses we started with was the governing law of a contract. Right. And, like, we were nailing it with like, <laughs> not that many examples, right? And then we tried changing control, and it was like, ugh, like, this just does not work.
0: Well, what was it about it made it so complicated to change of control provision? What about the, the number? Just a lot of different ways to phrase it, right? Yeah.
1: Like, really a lot of ways. So if there's a lot of ways to phrase it, you got like a couple problems, right? Uh, one problem is, You got to teach it the different ways to find it. And the software gets kind of confused, honestly, because it thinks like, you know, if there's like 10 different ways to say something, it's like, well, why are there 10 different ways to say something? Like, why isn't it just like all like type ones, right? And it's like type one, type two, type nine. So I think that's kind of tricky. But then you also have to find examples. Mm -hmm. And like, the third thing is that we mentioned, we touched on a little like the freestyle drafting like it's all jokes if you're talking about a contract and everything's on like a standard form contract. But a lot of the times, especially in English, you end up in these situations where like people are writing in English, but they're not like English first language or Mm. they're writing in English, but like British English is different than American English or they're writing in English, but it's a poor quality scan. And even though it, you might read the same if you had a good copy of the contract. Like you don't have a good copy of the contract. you have a bad quality scan. So all these factors kind of contribute to situations where some clauses are really hard to find. And more problematically, some of the clauses that are the hardest to find are some of the most valuable ones, right? right? Like, the assignment clause, not so bad. Change of control, not so bad. Confidentiality, not, so not so bad. All of which are valuable. Notice, super easy. Change of control, exclusivity, most favorite customer, non-compete can be really hard. And like you think about an exclusivity clause, the exclusivity clause might say, this is an exclusive agreement. That's fine. But it might say, I will buy all my requirements for podcast software from Riverside. right Right? and it's like that's a lot tricky
0: Right, right 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 where were you getting your contracts i mean before you had customers you're trying to train this thing so you didn't go cold into the market where were you getting the contracts to train it
1: you get them from a bunch of different sources like sometimes friends give them to you and stuff like that but uh edgar and other public filing systems have right like edgar has a few million contracts on it so you can train using those there are some quirks to contracts that are on edgar but it's
0: it's a pretty good place to start when we come back noah tells us about growing kira selling the company and spinning off his current company zuva i'm chad Maine, and you're listening to technically legal this podcast is brought to you by precipient a legal services company powered by technology Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll go back to my conversation with Noah Weisberg in just a second, but wanted to let you know that if you want to subscribe, you can find us wherever you get podcasts, all the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, Google, etc. While you're there, if you like us enough, I hope you'll leave us a friendly review. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Noah. And you just mentioned you thought it was going to be easier to raise money than build the software. And I know you didn't raise money for a long time. I mean, many, many, many years. How was it that you were able to scale and and keep going? Well, so at first, we didn't raise money intentionally,
1: right? Like we decided to prefer building the software and then building the business. But then, when it took a really long time to build the software, at that point, we didn't think we could raise money, right? Like we had a lot of empathy for funders. And what we realized is, like, you go to them, and you say, we think it's going to take us six months to build this business, and I'm a lawyer, and this guy's a CompSite PhD. They'll be like, okay, sounds legit, right? Six months in, when you go to them and the CompSite PhD says, oh, you know, it might take me another three months to crack the technical problem, it might take me 10 years, Right? they're going to be like, eh, that doesn't sound too interesting, right? So <laughs> just didn't even really go to that. Then by 2013, sort of like a couple of years in, we had the software working but no one had ever paid us money, right? And so if we went to them and said, hey, why don't you give us some funding? Like we solved this really hard technical problem. They'd be like, you've been running a business for two years selling to lawyers who we know are a hard market. Like at the time, lawyers were, I think, thought of as a very hard market for tech. And so why would we think that you're gonna have any more success as a business, right? So we kind of had that situation. And then we just started making money. And we ended up making money at such a at like a pace that actually it, for a time outstripped our spending, right? Like unintentionally, we were kind of profitable. Like we were just.
0: What do you attribute like, that to? Good sales. I mean, what was it? Yeah, it was like we were
1: selling faster than we were spending. Like in a typical startup, you kind of like build the business so that you're ready when business comes, right? Right. Like, You kind of build support ahead of having a lot of customers to support, for example. But in our situation, it was like, we're signing up these contracts that were pretty good. Like our software kind of eventually met a need and sort of grew really quickly. And it just took us a while to scale out the business behind that. Like we could not scale it as quickly as we were able to sell, which is a wonderful problem to have. Though it's still a problem. Like it's, it's hairy and stressful, but quite quite, quite hairy, but ultimately it's a pretty good problem to have. And so we were growing the business super quickly. Like we went from, it sort of took us forever to get any kind of revenue going. Uh, I think we got our first revenue in sort of later 2013. And it was like, remember we got like the first check and it was like $3,000 <laughs> or something like that. and We were overjoyed because then we could say that we had revenue. Right. right? Like that through early 2014, where there were like four of us and it was very like, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to just make enough money to pay salaries that pay everybody's salary that year. And partly through 2014, we nailed like this one huge contract and started growing off the back of that and then hired some awesome sales and marketing people who were, did a really great job of building us out in the law space, uh, I guess, like Steve Ovensky and Kenan Mann and Tony Ensinger, um, who helped us build out the law space. And we ended up growing really quickly once we got that motion right. So we were like 30 people by the end of, t- so four people summer of 2014, eight people by the end of 2014, like 30 people by the end of 2016. And we were like 100 people in summer 2018, wow. all off of just bootstrap revenue growth. And 100 was not as big as we needed to be to do all the stuff we were trying to do. And so then at that point, we decided to raise some money that we didn't actually need it at that point, but we thought it was kind of
0: a prudent, smart thing to do. And so we did. Nice. And so fast forward to 2020, Lutera acquires the company, and then you. For lack of a word, spin off Zuva. At what point did you start thinking about Zuva and starting that company after Kira was acquired? We sold in start of 2020,
1: Letera approached us and we started, we started talking to them, but we were kind of disinclined to do a deal at the time. But like years before, I'd had a conversation with a super sharp one of the insight guys, John Rosenbaum. Insight were our outside funders. And I was talking to him about the business and I was saying how I thought the market for corporates pulling data out of contracts was sort of bigger than the market for law firms pulling data out of contracts. And he's like, well, you know, if you end up like the business developing the way it is, you're going to have a very valuable law firm business. And if you end up developing the corporate business, it's actually going to be a problem. So like if Salesforce, say, came to buy the corporate part of the business, they would have this problem that there would be this like very valuable law firm part of the business in there and it would almost like it would push up the price but it wouldn't add any value from salesforce's perspective and so you'd almost have to like sell it and that was a conversation i had in probably 2018 right and it was just like maybe 2019 and it just sort of sat in my head a bit and i was always kind of thinking about how you solve it and what i realized when laterick came to us is that Latera is super focused on they have a bunch of corporate customers, but they're super focused on being an excellent vendor to law firms. And what I realized is that we had a really large law firm business, which is the part of Cura that they valued and that they could probably do as good a job on that as we could and maybe even a better job on that part of the business than we could. And that by spinning out the sort of efforts that we had in the corporate space, it would give us more focus well sort of really taking care of our customers on the law firm side and getting us a nice financial outcome as well.
0: When you did the deal with Latera, best guesstimate, what was your law firm customer base versus corporate customer base as a percentage?
1: Probably law firm and other professional service firm was probably 75%. Right. Like we had a very dominant position in the law firm space. Uh, I think 18 of the top 25 global law firms used Kira for contract review. And it was like more than half the MLA 100, like just, but firms everywhere. I think it was like 10 or 11 of the top 12 revenue firms in the UK used us. We had a bunch of firms in continental Europe, like all over the place, like one of India's best firms using us you know, Australia, like lots of places where people were using us. And in the law firm space, we were super strong. And it was kind of a predictable thing. Like you could kind of see this future where contract review was going to be like blacklining software, where everybody would have it. And it was just going to be this ubiquitous way that when you came to review a contract at a law firm, you were going to review it using tech like ours and ideally ours. But with corporate side, it was our offering was really good for some corporates, but it just other ones were looking for more contract management software. And we just it wasn't a systematically good business in the same way that the law firm side was.
0: So it sounds like though you were thinking about the idea behind ZUVA for a while, though. And, you know, it makes sense the
1: business that became zuva was being built inside kira and we had a proof of concept on and a slated launch time in september for that business right like we intended it to launch like late september pre doing the spin off and one of the things that i was super proud of with the spin off is our team managed to still stick that targeted commercial launch day or sort of stick the the software launch time and the commercial launch time, despite doing the spinoff. So these were businesses that were already being built out. I just didn't think they made sense inside Latera. And I was like, if I was Avanish, I would shut down these businesses because they're just money pits right now. And sort of and she took that logic and sort of, I guess, agreed with it enough to let us do the deal. Uh, but this was a business that we'd been planning to do and a whole bunch of people were working on inside Kira.
0: Let's draw the distinction here. If, if you meet somebody at a barbecue and you're trying to explain the difference between Kira and Zuva, I mean, obviously we just talked about customer base is a little different. Explain the differences in focus.
1: The core thing about Kira is Kira is, I believe, the world's premier project-based contract review tool, okay? so best way if you're trying to review a whole bunch of contracts on a discrete project to review them. And why it works so well for law firms and other professional service firms is a lot of the time they are retained on projects. Kira found parts of contracts that were relevant, but it wrapped all that up in a user interface that was really good for project-based contract review. Zuva, on the other hand, still has that same underlying technology. But instead of wrapping it up in a workflow, like a user interface that's really great for project-based contract reviews, we just enable anyone to take our underlying technology and build it into their system.
0: So you, via APIs via APIs.
1: But if I was at a barbecue, then I would have to explain what an API is. Yeah,
0: please is. do. No, that was my next question. I'm I'm, I'm the guy at the barbecue. Ex- explain to me what the API yeah, so is.
1: So an API is a programming interface that just gives a set of instructions. So an analogy that I like to think about is like, Imagine your DVD player, which you probably you don't even have anymore.
0: No, I do. <laughs> like, I just I had to dug I, I dug it out the other day for a buddy of mine. I, I do have one. So you got
1: a DVD player, right? And you know that like if you plug an HDMI cable into the back of the DVD player, you can plug it into your TV and like the images will come out of the TV. And similarly, you can do that with like a Blu-ray player or an Xbox or whatever a computer. And you can plug all those into the TV because there's a standardized set of instructions. And in the case of like a piece of hardware, the standardized set of instructions are actually like a cable port, right? Like, you know, if you put in this cable port that you'll get this output that you can then push into another system. Ours is just like that, but because it's software, the cable port is a little bit less standardized, right? So instead of it being like a USB-C cable or an HDMI cable, it's like, a code but someone who knows how to code or even can use power automate or some tool like that can build our technology into their technology and know what they're going to get so a way to think of it is like with kira you can think of us as like an integrated car manufacturer okay and us realizing that the engine that we built in the car was really spectacular and we thought better than anything that existed at the time and something that we put a whole lot of Everett into it, realizing that you could take that same engine and plug it not only into cars, but into trucks and into lawnmowers and into boats and into helicopters. And so that's what Zuba is. is It's like spinning out the engine division of your car company.
0: And and why was that? Why did you decide to focus on being basically the underpinnings of other people's apps, the, the brain's? Instead of building out a you know another UI interface, maybe a project-based interface that users could use just like they did Kira.
1: So we think there's a whole lot of contracts problems in the world today, but you know, it's not like the problem of global warming or (laughs) something like that. But there are many ways that businesses could run better and organizations could run better if they knew it was in their contracts, if they could negotiate them more quickly. And so we foresee a whole lot of tools getting built to enhance contract review. And we knew from Kira that AI was part of that, but not the whole piece, like workflow is really important, other types of AI might be really important, but we thought that just being able to pull details out of contracts was something that would be really important to solve contracts problems inside enterprises. And we also knew from Kira, that it's really hard to build this technology well. Like This is the thing that we thought would take us four months and instead was taking us like two and a half years. And it was something that we've been working on sort of continuously since 2011. And even though technology had kind of improved over that time, it still was a really hard problem to solve well and one that we were spending like millions of dollars a year on at Kira as we got bigger. And, in the meantime, despite spending millions of dollars a year on it, it still was hard, right? Like, it just is a really hard thing to do well. But we realized that if we could make it dead easy to sort of incorporate the best-in-class AI into other applications, that other people could build really cool stuff and not have to worry about this thing, that we, it had been a huge burden for us. And so we thought that could be kind of appealing. And that was the idea for Why Do It?
0: what's a use case that you've seen that you, you didn't think of it's it's kind of just surprised you or blown you away that one of your customers have have put it to use already
1: one that's pretty cool that's just in proof concept right now so i i don't know how it'll come out but is a company who had a whole process for developers to try new pieces of software so at this comp at this tech company If you were a developer there, you need to get approval from legal to try a new piece of software. And the main thing that legal cared about was making sure that there's no competitive restriction language in a license agreement you propose to sign up to, because that could get the parent company in a lot of trouble. And so you used to have to sort of create a ticket and get legal to review your contract for that type of language. And it was sort of slow and inefficient. And what someone at the company did is they built a tool using Power Automate and Doc AI that when you go to create a ticket for a new license agreement that you'd like to try and you attach the license agreement, license agreement goes automatically into Zuba. Zuba reviews if there is competitive restriction language. If there's no competitive restriction of language, the developer immediately gets a this is okay uh, type of approval, but if there is competitive restriction language, then it goes to sort of a legal function for review, along with like a sample of the ones where it was said there was no restriction. And what I think is so cool about that is that from a user of legal's perspective, which means like the developers who need to get approval, lots of developers who need to get approval will now get approval in like five minutes, as opposed to five days right? Because their thing is no problem. And it's just ones where there is a problem where it'll still take a bit longer to get reviewed. Uh, So from the legal department's perspective, they're delivering a sort of solution to people way faster than they would have. And they're also only having to spend their effort on a limited number of cases. But I think the speed thing to me is the coolest part where there's lots of people who are just going to get out of this review process in five minutes. I think it's amazing.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. And one thing I noticed on your website too is your pricing is really straightforward. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's basically uh, maybe a buck 25 a document. And then plus um, there's an additional, even less than pennies per clause per page to use the software. So
1: this is actually V2 of our pricing. Uh, V1 was kind of a complicated arcade credits sort of thing with Zuba units, but we really sat and simplified it. And one thing that's kind of cool is I think we're probably, there aren't too many pieces of legal software where you can see our pricing on our website. We thought it was really a better buying experience for people if they knew how much are at cost. Uh, But yeah, we put a lot of work into simplifying there. And we're always just thinking about how to make it really easy to be our customer. Like I mentioned before, our company mission is literally make it dead simple to use the world's best contracts AI. And so if you think about make it dead simple to use the world's best contracts AI, it's like, number one, we got to build the world's best contracts AI. And number two, we got to make it dead simple to use. And if the pricing is complicated, or you can't find it, then it's not simple, right? Like there's a a bit of friction around that and so what we're trying to do is just make it low friction to become our customer. so pricing is one example of that but there's lots more like we have really good documentation of our api so that it's really easy to develop on top of our user agreement is one where most people who sign up just don't negotiate our user agreement at all because we've made it simple to be our customer like we're not trying to take terrible rights off of you i think it's like a relatively fair user agreement. And that's just like another way that we're trying to make it dead simple to use the world's best contracts, AI. So
0: we've been talking a lot about AI for obvious reasons today, but you literally wrote the book, AI for Lawyers. What was was something you learned about the book writing process that you didn't expect?
1: Oh, wow. So I love reading. Love reading fiction, love reading nonfiction. And it was really cool to be on the sausage uh, making side (laughs) of it. It's a lot of work, <laughs> like really, really. Uh, I, I think I thought it would be a fair amount of work, but it was a fair amount more work than I expected to do the book. I don't know if that's like a surprising learning or anything like that. Like it should be a lot of work to write a book, but it it really was a lot of work. And how long did it take you? Probably got started on it for real real in probably march or april and i think we were kind of submitted the draft that didn't have that many changes in probably august uh but that was over like 2020 like lockdown right and it took a lot of effort it was actually so i i am also the author of robbie the robot learns to read uh what we believe to be the world's first children's book on machine learning And that one was like pretty easy in comparison. I think it's 256 words, whereas AI for Lawyers is probably like 250 pages. Right. Uh, Yeah, effort level in AI for Lawyers was a lot higher, even though we had a bunch of like things trying to make it easier, like teammates helping us and contributors, like excellent contributors putting in chapters and all sorts of stuff like that. It still, was a lot of work.
0: One of the coolest chapters in there was, and I had never thought about this use case, there was the story of a partner who was retiring and you took Kira and basically programmed his knowledge. Like, how did that come about?
1: That's a wonderful story from Amy Monaghan, who is now at Perkins Code. And it was just that firm. Uh, she at the time was at Chapman & Cutler. And Chapman & Cutler had really bought in the idea of building out Kira and training models for their use cases. And we're sort of an inspirational firm for us terms of seeing what people could do. And they had a sort of niche finance practice where there was a partner who was retiring and he had a lot of just specialty knowledge about that area. And so he, it's intermediated by Amy, uh, so he didn't actually like do the teaching himself, but he would like literally sit with Amy and be like, that is an X clause and this is a Y clause. And the system would learn it. So they'd kind of be able to capture some of what he knew before he retired. It was really cool and it made us think a lot. It was was super thought provoking in just making us consider how individual people had, might have like specialized models of doing things. Like the way one lawyer treats something is different than the way another lawyer treats something. And so you're almost training like an individual Personal version of you in a small
0: function of your life. Along those lines, what is a use case of AI and legal that you don't think anybody's thinking about yet, but but could be something? I think the
1: biggest one, there have been a lot of changes in how stuff can get done over the last 15 years, right? So you got things like contract review software, but there's lots of other pieces of AI out there as well, right? Where Some of our users were getting through projects in 30% less, 20%, 30% less time, but we had people who get through a review in 90% less time, right? Uh, Who are really leaning into it and in a situation where they could get through in 90% less time. You got other things that can also make people more efficient, like using better processes, using other pieces of software. And then you got people in cheaper locations, right? (laughs) Who still may be good lawyers, but they're just in a less expensive location. Maybe that less expensive location is West Virginia. Maybe the less expensive location is like India or something like that. And what I don't think we've seen a lot of is you see a lot of people who are using discrete pieces of that, right? Like they're doing a contract review, they're doing the contract reviews in Kira and they're doing it 50% less time. And like maybe they're using that to expand the contract group a bit beyond what it would be before. But what, I don't see a lot of people thinking about is like thinking through if you incorporated the say 90% time savings of really leaning into AI, plus maybe the 10% time savings of using better processes, plus the maybe 50% cost savings of using labor in a cheaper location, like which might just be Halifax or, you know, Ohio, as opposed to New York. That if you kind of combined all those things together, what you could do is maybe provide something today that you could have never, nobody ever would have bought if you did it the old way. But that you might be able to like do something so much cheaper, so much faster that you might be able to create a new market beyond just doing an old thing faster or better. And I don't see a lot of people kind of taking advantage of that to build something new from scratch and uh I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there very
0: like interesting. i think
1: about just uber as the kind of parallel example of like the one cool thing about uber is sitting there it's like realizing like huh people are carrying around gpss in their pockets like what's a business i can offer because people are carrying around gpss mm-hmm. and like little computers in their pockets
0: yeah No, i said that's interesting yeah that, that's interesting so noah Appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about your books, about you, more about ZUVA, where do you want to where do you want to send them? So, books available
1: on Amazon or elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> AI for Lawyers is the sort of big uh, Wall Street Journal best selling book about AI for lawyers. We aim to have it be the definitive guide to that. Just get it on Amazon or wherever else you buy books. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Noah Waysberg, uh, or on Twitter at at nways. And then, yeah, a company that runs called ZUVA, Z-U-V-A, dot A-I. So check us out. We try to make it really easy to buy. And if there are things we could do to make it even easier for you, please let us know. We love feedback.
0: Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe you can find us on most major podcast platforms like apple spotify google stitcher etc also if you like us enough i hope you leave us a favorable review thanks again for listening until next time this has been technically legal